In 2 Kings chapter 19, if you'll join me there in your Bibles, as we continue our journey through 2 Kings together, we're uh, in chapter 19, chapters 18 and 19 sort of record for us this uh, section uh, where uh, the Assyrians who have conquered and taken captive the northern kingdom of Israel. At this point, remember, we've been watching the divided kingdom, the southern kingdom, and the northern kingdom both exist. The northern kingdom has now been captured, uh, and they have been taken away, deported by the nation of Assyria, who's kind of the dominant empire. And now it seems the Assyrian empire has sort of put their focus upon the southern kingdom of Israel, referred to as Judah, and has been making threats towards them, particularly uh, messengers have been sent, uh, three ambassadors. We were told last time the Tartan, the Rabsaris, and the Rabshekah were sent by King uh, Sennacherib uh, to go there and to really just seek to infuse intimidation uh, and fear and discouragement in the hearts of the people of Judah that he was now going to come and conquer them as he has at this point. Many of the other surrounding nations, uh, he as well as conquered their uh, northern brethren there in, in the northern part of Israel, Samaria, and, and the northern kingdom. So these threats, these intimidations are coming, uh, these messages continue to be sent, and, and really just kind of uh, prompting the people uh, that they wouldn't trust in Hezekiah's counsel as their king, uh, prompting the people that they should not trust that somehow God was going to come to their aid and help them nor any other army the Egyptians or anyone else and this continual threatening voice uh, that the Lord was not going to come through for them in fact if you look back in chapter 18 uh, verse 31 we sort of get the context as we move into chapter 19 again this is kind of the message that's coming uh, to them <clears throat> do not let Hezekiah they say uh, for thus says the king of Assyria, make peace with me. So don't listen to Hezekiah, your king. Make peace with me. Make a covenant with me. And remember, he was promising them, look, if you make peace with me, I can bring you into measure of prosperity and peace that you've never known before. It will be better for you if you just compromise and really succumb uh, to my rulership over you. Again, the, the voice of the enemy, they're just encouraging them to give in and to submit to their enemy rather than to stand in trust and dependence upon their God. And as we talked about, just certainly a very fitting picture in all these things of exactly what uh, the enemy of our soul seeks to do to us. Uh, he doesn't want us to be under the authority of God. He doesn't want us to trust in the Lord. He wants to do everything he can to undermine our confidence in the Lord, uh, our willingness to yield to God and depend upon God. And he's going to seek to speak into our minds, whether it's through the voices of people around us or just sometimes the, you know, the voices that go running through my and your head. Yes, you're not alone. It happens to me too. Uh, voices of doubt and discouragement and where we just question and become fearful and we start letting our mind run with situations and circumstances and, and all of a sudden we find ourselves just feeling as if, you know what, it's never going to work out, it's just not possible and, and really that's just tempting us to make compromises and to make concessions on things that aren't God's will for our life and maybe to, to allow the enemy to make us sort of kind of almost become captive to do his will rather than doing what the will of the Lord is for our life. Uh, so these words of threatening keep coming towards them 
that they're not going to be able to survive. Verse 33 in chapter 18, has any of the gods of the nations at all delivered its land from the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods? Chapter 18, verse 34, of Hamath and Arpad. Where are the gods of the Sepharvim and Hena and Iva? Indeed, have they delivered Samaria from my hand? In other words, no other nation's been able to stand against me. No other nation and their gods have helped them. Who among all the gods of the lands have delivered their countries from my hand? Verse 35, the taunt that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem now from my hand. So, so this is what's going on. The, the taunting, the, 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 the challenging that God doesn't love them. He's not going to come through for them. He doesn't have the power to take care of his people. And this was a legitimate threat. Again, this was the, the world empire at this time. It's not as if these were uh, false threats. These were real sincere threats. They have been sweeping through, taking nation after nation. They've watched the northern kingdom fall. So there's genuine fear here. There's genuine concern. We saw that as we just peeked into verse 1 of chapter 19 last week as we closed out, look at chapter 19, verse 1 as we pick it up. And so it was when King Hezekiah heard this that he tore his clothes and he covered himself with sackcloth and he went into the house of the Lord. So as King Hezekiah, king of the southern kingdom of Judah, is hearing these threats uh, these uh, words that are criticizing God, trying to undermine the people's faith in their king and their allegiance to their king, as well as worse, undermine their trust in the Lord by saying, don't trust in the Lord. He's genuinely concerned. He has a genuine fear. This army is sitting on his doorstep. He knows that they have way more power militarily than he does. So this is a legitimate circumstance that is threatening. And sometimes we face circumstances that are legitimately threatening and they make us legitimately fearful. And we realize this isn't something I can solve in my flesh. This isn't something I can just fix with my own resources. And if this plays out the way it looks on paper right now, situationally, circumstantially, I'm done. I'm going to be overcome. I'm going to be defeated. Everything's going to bottom out and fall apart. And, and we find ourselves kind of gripped with fear and overwhelmed. But I love, again, the, what Hezekiah does here. Certainly a great example. Again, and this is a national leader. What a beautiful thing to see. Would to God we get a little more of this. It says that the king, when he heard these threats, he tore his clothes. Again, that's a, a symbol of grief. And humility, that when something overwhelming would happen, the Jewish people would often do is they would tear their clothes. And it was just symbolic of how the, as they were wrenching their clothes of that this is something that's tearing me up. It's very overwhelming. And as they would tear their clothes, it was a way of sort of just expressing their grief and demonstrating their humility that they feel very vulnerable in this situation. So here it just pictures the king, first of all, humbling himself as he tears his clothes and covers himself with sackcloth, that very uncomfortable material was sort of like a camel's hair type material. So as they would cover themselves, this, these were pictures of humility. And I like this picture. Here is the king of the nation and he's humbling himself. And he's humbling himself who? He's humbling himself before God because it says he went into the house of the Lord. So he humbled himself rather than saying as the king, I can fix this problem. Let's just muster our military. Let's just get our best strategists. Let's just work on our economy. Instead, he says, we better turn to God because there's no way this is going to be solved unless God intervenes. 
And so he humbles himself before the Lord and he goes into the house of God. And we mentioned last time, this is such a beautiful picture of how we should process life's dilemmas, difficulties, major trials and tragedies that come upon us. How do you process those things? You worship your way through them. Just like Job did in the Old Testament. Job lost so much in an instant, lost family members, lost his business, lost his health. I mean, all these things came crashing down on Job at once. And it says, in all these things, Job did not curse God foolishly. He didn't charge God and get angry at God. Instead, Job fell on his face and he worshiped. And and he worshiped his way through his difficulty. Job ultimately says in his book, as you you read through it, Job ultimately says, though he slay me, yet I will trust him. And, And often this is the only thing we can do. How do we regain our perspective? How do we process fears and emotions and all the things that come upon us, the weight of our feelings and thoughts when we go through hardships and trials and tragedies and things that are just over our heads sometimes? You just begin to put your eyes on the Lord. And you just worship your way through it. And if that means you need to pray and sing and worship and let tears run down your face as you process life's difficulties, you know what? Can I tell you something? There's no better place to do that. Much better than being bitter. Much better than than washing it down with a bunch of beers. Much better than sitting on a therapist's couch. The best thing to do is just to go into God's house and begin to worship the great I am and let him refocus your attention and put his, your eyes upon him once again. And the king goes in to the house of the Lord. And notice what also he does, verse two. He then sent Eliakim, who was over the household, Shebna, the scribe, and the elders of the priests. So he calls together some of his cabinet members, as well as a few of the spiritual leaders, the priests. And it says they were covered with sackcloth and he sent them to Isaiah, the prophet, the son of Amos. Now, I like what they do here, which gives you, again, a little historical context. The prophet Isaiah, one of our major prophetic books in the Old Testament, was ministering during the time of some of these kings we're looking at. Particularly, there you have reference, he was ministering during the time of Hezekiah historically. Also, uh, during the time of of Uzziah and some of these other kings. So we kind of get a little bit of context for the prophecies of Isaiah. And so now he sends a few of his cabinet members to Isaiah the prophet. I like this. What else is this king doing very wisely at a time of a real tragedy, a difficulty, and a dilemma? He's now seeking the word of the Lord. I need direction, God. I don't know what to do. I'm fearful. I'm concerned. I don't know how to handle this. I can't fix this. I, what do I do? And what, he says, look, we need to send to prophet Isaiah because he was representative in that day of, of giving forth and speaking the word of the Lord. So he's seeking a word from God, seeking the word of the Lord. And you know, when we go through our difficulties on top of worshiping our way through it and humbling ourselves before God, one of the very wise things that we can do is much the same thing. We should seek the word of the Lord, whether that's getting into the word of God more seriously and saying, Lord, in a way like never before, I need you to speak to me from your word. Lord, I'm not just looking for some more Bible information so I can impress my friends that I know more theology than other Christians. 
Lord, I'm, I need to read your word in the present tense because I need something to come off of that page, a verse, a statement, a word, whatever, that is going to be a rhema word, a timely word that, Lord, is the word that I need for this situation to speak to me, to comfort me or to give me some clarity or direction or just to help me to know what you would have me to do in the midst of this or to hear your promise to me that I can hold on to that. So he seeks now the prophet Isaiah because he wants to get a word from the Lord. He wants guidance spiritually and I like this. So they go to Isaiah, verse three says, and they say to him, thus says Hezekiah, the king, this is a day of great trouble and rebuke and blasphemy for the children have come to birth but there is no strength to bring them forth the idea there is is things are so desperate they illustrate it like a woman after carrying a child for you know a nine to ten month term now beginning labor pains and going through the whole painful process and the trauma watched it three times watched it i emphasize that watched it three times but then imagine after all that coming to place where she just doesn't even have the strength then to push out the child and you want to talk about desperation a situation you want to talk about the the picture of just an absolute desperate situation and this is the idea that is we don't even have the strength to ultimately do what would need to be done so they say verse four since we're so weak and this situation is so hopeless and our strength is unable to handle this verse four it may be they say to isaiah that the lord your god will hear all the words of the rabshakeh and the master king of assyria who is sent to reproach the living God and will rebuke the words which the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, they ask Isaiah the prophet, lift up your prayer for the remnant that is left. So the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah saying these things. So again, they're seeking a word from the Lord, but notice also what they're doing. They go to Isaiah, they report to him exactly what's transpiring because they see Isaiah as someone of, of a spiritual figurehead. They see him as a, what he is. He's a spiritual leader in the land at this time. He's a prophetic voice. He's a man of God. He's a, he's a minister of Yahweh God. So they go to him and they seek guidance from a spiritually solid and mature person. Great wisdom too. What a wonderful thing if more politicians, more political leaders would say, you know what? Yeah, we need some cabinet members. And so I have my advisor in this and my advisor for that. Look, there should also be a few people that are giving spiritual guidance as well. That's a helpful thing. That's a necessary thing. Uh, and here, so they go and they seek out someone to, to give to them some spiritual guidance. And for all of us in our lives, I hope that when we go through our difficulties and we're trying to process them, that we have someone in our life, maybe a few people in our life that are a solid, mature man of God or woman of God that we can go to in that situation and say, look, this is what's going on. And it's overwhelming and, and I can just and you just share what's going on rather than trying to process it yourself or hold it in or be embarrassed to talk about it or you know too proud to share what's going on that you just go and say, Look, this is what's going on. And I need some guidance. And I'm coming to you because I believe that you have a level of spiritual maturity and you have a relationship with the Lord. And, and what a wonderful thing to have a one or two or a few people like that in our lives 
that we can go to in those times and not only share our heart with them and ask for their help, but more than that, what do they ask Isaiah to do at the end of verse 4? They say, lift up your prayer for the remnant of Israel. They say, Isaiah, would you please pray? Pray. And you know what? The reason why we want to have a few of those people like that in our life, a few solid, spiritually mature people that we go to, is not just to share with them, but also to ask them, would you, would you engage in prayer with me for this? Because some things that we go through in this life, there may be situations we go through in this life where the Lord kind of wants us to depend upon him solely and walk it out. But look, there are things that we also go through that you're not supposed to journey through alone. The Bible even tells us, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And there are certain things we go through that are so heavy, so difficult, maybe just so overwhelming in our life personally that we're not meant to walk through that alone. That it's actually somewhat disobedient for us to try and go solo and think that we can handle it ourselves when the Lord is saying, no, you need to lean on one or two or a few others and ask them, look, would you pray for me? Would you join me in prayer for this? I need God's strength. I need God's direction. And what a wonderful thing when we as the body of Christ can, can operate in that way and we can fulfill that process in each other's life. When we can journey together and bear each other's burdens and, and often that happens as we covenant together, hey, let's pray through this together. We're going to stand in prayer together and navigate this as one together as God's people. And so they go to Isaiah, please pray, Isaiah, ask that God would intervene. It says verse six, and Isaiah said to them, so they went for a word from God, they asked him to pray, and now Isaiah the prophet brings forth the word of the Lord in this situation, Isaiah said to them, verse six, thus you shall say to your master, go back to the king and bring King Hezekiah this word in his fearful condition. Thus says the Lord, do not be afraid of the words which you have heard with which the servants of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. Surely I will send a spirit upon him and he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land and I will cause him to fall by the sword in his own land. So here now comes the word from the Lord and notice it is a word of encouragement. The first thing that the word of the Lord was for the king Hezekiah at this time is very simply do not be afraid. I know that you are afraid. It's normal to be afraid when we go through hard things, scary things. It's natural to get scared. But how many times in the word of God do we see the word from the Lord to us as his people is, I do not want you to be afraid. You don't have to live in fear. You don't have to be overwhelmed by fear because of what's going on or what you've just heard. I love what he says. Do not be afraid of the words which you have heard. He had just heard some very threatening news, some very scary things. And you know, sometimes in our lives, maybe we get a very scary report. Maybe it's a medical report. Maybe it's some, you know, economic news, financial situation. Maybe it's something just that somebody tells us about or we hear is going to happen and, and it's scary and it's overwhelming. And sometimes the Lord's word to us is, I know what you've heard and I know it's terrifying you, but you don't have to be afraid because I got a plan 
and I'm going to deal with it for you. I'm going to take care of it. He says, do not be afraid of what you've heard, which the servants of Assyria have said. Look, God says they blaspheme me. God's saying this really isn't your issue. (laughs) They're mouthing off about me, God says. I'm taking this personally because this is against me and you're my children. And he says, verse seven, surely I'm going to send a spirit upon him and he's going to notice, hear a rumor, not even something true. He's going to hear a rumor and that's going to cause the king of Assyria to turn away from Jerusalem and to go back to his own land and leave the people of Judah untouched and unharmed. Now I look at that and I think to myself, what an amazing thing. Not only does the Lord give assurance that no human intimidation is greater than the Lord's protection or work in our life, but the Lord also, verse 7, makes it very evident there that he can use absolutely anything to deal with what he needs to to help us in our lives. He's going to make this king not hear something factual. He said, God said, I'm going to start a rumor. Imagine that. God's going to start a rumor. That puts a whole new light on rumors, huh? But I wouldn't recommend it. I think when God does a rumor, there's something sanctified about it. Or maybe God's just going to use the sinful mouths of human beings and he's going to use the sinful wrong rumor and he's going to use that for his purposes. Again, the Bible tells us that God can take the wrath of man against him and make it praise him somehow. So people spread rumors. People say, so God says, I'm going to make him hear a rumor and the rumor is going to make him turn around and say, hey, we can't attack Jerusalem. Let's return. We got to go back to our own country. So again, what a, just a, a neat thing to recognize. The Lord is superintending and he can orchestrate any circumstance to help you out. You're thinking, Lord, anything. God can use rumors. God can use unique little things that we would never think of And he can use those things to fulfill his purposes to come to your aid and my assistance in our lives. So verse eight, notice what happens. Then the Rabshakeh returned and he found the king of Assyria warring against Libna for he heard that he had departed from Lachish and the king heard concerning Tirhak, king of Ethiopia. Look, he has come to make war with you. There's the rumor. He heard, oh, that king's coming against us. He's gonna come make war against us. We better pull away from Jerusalem and go back and defend our own country. He heard, and what he heard caused him to turn away, just like God said it would happen. But notice verse 9. So he again sent messengers to Hezekiah, saying, Thus you shall speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah, saying, Do not let your God, in whom you trust, deceive you, saying, Jerusalem shall not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Look, you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all the lands, utterly destroying them. And shall you be delivered? Have the gods of the nations delivered those whom my fathers have destroyed? Gozan and Haran and Rezeph and the people of Eden who were in Telassar. Where is the king of Hamath, the king of Arpad and the king of the city of the Sepharvim and Hena and Iva? So what happens is this, as he turns to go back to defend his own land from hearing this rumor, He thinks to himself, the king at this time says, you know what? I don't want Hezekiah to actually think that his prayers are actually working. I mean, that wouldn't be good. So listen, we're going to turn back away from Jerusalem and go back to our land. But it says there that he sent messengers, verse 9, again back to Hezekiah, repeating the same message. 
questioning God's faithfulness, saying God's not going to help them. All the other nations have fallen prey to their powers, the conquering nation at this time. And again, taunting and questioning and intimidating their ability to stay safe. Because again, what does he want to do? What he wants to do is undermine the idea in the minds of God's people that their prayers are actually working. So he sends messengers back. We don't want them to think that their prayers are working. Go confuse them. Go, go tell them that that's not really why we're turning back. And don't think just because we're leaving temporarily, we're not coming back to get you. So, and again, I look at this and I think to myself, what a fitting analogy again uh, of what the enemy of our soul tries to do to all of us. Uh, verse 10 there, they say, do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you saying Jerusalem shall be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Again, what, what what's, does the enemy of our soul do in much the same way? He wants to make us question God, make us question God's word, make us question God's faithfulness, God's promises, God's character. Consider the Garden of Eden. The very first time the devil, the enemy of our soul, shows up in the Bible, do you know what he's doing? He's inspiring man to question God, did God really say, do you really think God is your best? Interest? He just knows that if you partake of that tree, that then you'll understand good and evil and you'll be like him. God's just holding out on you. What's he doing? He's trying to get Adam from the very beginning to question God's nature, to question God's goodness or holiness or righteousness or fairness, and to get Adam to question God's word. His playbook hasn't changed. That's exactly what he does in our lives. He seeks to inspire doubts and questions to make us question God, question God's reality, question God's character and nature, to question the word of God. That's the work of the devil. That's the voice of the enemy. And to get us to question that even our prayers are working. I mean, do you really think your prayers are doing something? I mean, come on. It's just coincidence once in a while. It's not really God moved on your behalf personally. So why bother keep praying? I mean, that one time you thought God answered prayer, I mean, that was just a coincidence. Don't really think that your prayers matter because the devil doesn't want us to rely upon God and dependence. So these threats come, but notice verse 14, beautiful what Hezekiah does. Hezekiah receives the letter. Apparently it was written out these taunts and threats from the hand of the messengers and he read it hearing what we just read all these threats that their God wouldn't be able to help them he read the letter and then Hezekiah verse 14 went up to the house of the Lord and he spread it before the Lord and then Hezekiah prayed before the Lord so he takes this letter this document of now accusations and threats and intimidation and doubt and discouragement and he brings it into the house of the Lord and he just takes it and he just spreads it out before God and he says, Lord, do you see what they're saying about you? D do you see what's being conveyed? And he just lays it all out before God and he just prays over it. And, and I like this. I think to myself, what, what a wonderful thing to do there. I mean, sometimes that may be what we need to do with our bills. Lord, do you see what Atlantic City Electric and my mortgage company and, uh, you know, Shore Memorial Hospital and you, know, and you got all these, and, and Visa and Lord, do you see what they're saying? That they're going to come and take everything away from me? <laughs> Lord, Lord do, what do I do? 
And you just take it and you say, Lord, what do I do? And you spread it all out before God and you say, God, what do I do with all this? What do I do with it? Or Lord, do you see this letter of, you know, that I'm going to be laid off? Or Lord, do you see this nasty gram I got from somebody who got disgruntled with me and now they're saying all these mean and nasty things? Sometimes you may need to just take your phone and that text that was so nasty, just lay it there. The Lord, do you see what that text says? Lord, what do you want me to do with that? How do you want me to respond to that? Lord, how do I? And again, I just like the picture here, just taking it and spreading the thing out, spread the matter before the Lord. What, what, what's the matter in your life right now? Instead of just responding in your own thoughts and ideas and trying to fix, maybe you just need to spread the whole thing out before God and just lay it before the Lord in prayer. Hezekiah prayed, verse 15, O Lord God of Israel, the one who dwells between the cherubim, you are God, you alone of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Lord, you're different than all their gods because you're the creator God. You're the one true God, the God who has power to create the heavens and the earth. He says, verse 16, incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. So he's saying, Lord, listen and, and, and look upon what's happening. Hear the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to reproach the living God. Lord, it's your honor. Your honor is being challenged here, Lord. Your glory is being uh, you know, attacked in this situation. I love a man who has a heart for the glory of God, for the honor of God. Truly, verse 17, Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste to the nations and their lands, and they have cast their gods into the fire, verse 18, for they were, notice this, they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone, therefore they destroy them. I, I like his reasoning there in prayer. He says, Lord, it's true what he says. They've conquered all these other nations and destroyed their gods. But he says the reason why, verse 18, is because they weren't even gods. They were the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Again, interesting. I don't know. Did some of this come from Isaiah 44, which is the prophet who's ministering at this time? Isaiah 44, and there are other places. Isaiah himself taunts this idea of how people would make their own gods and their idols. Isaiah 44, he describes how a man goes out into a forest and he would chop down a tree with his own energy and effort. He'd chop down the tree by the sweat of his brow and then he would begin to cut up the wood and some of it he would use for fire to heat his house and to cook his food. And then another part of it he would use to fasten a chair and build himself from furniture. And then a remaining part of the same tree and log, he would then make it to his God and then put on his cart and pull his God down to the goldsmith and say, can you put some gold and silver over top of that? And then he would fall down before and say, and you are my God. And, and Isaiah says, whoa, 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 have you ever thought about the reasoning in that? I mean, the reasoning in that, I mean, the same piece of wood, you, you burn in a fire, you make some furniture, and then you make a God and then you bow down to it. And again, just the foolishness of really humanity, the things that we worship sometimes. Why would we give allegiance to anything other than the one true and living God who made us, created us, gave us breath in our lungs and has the power to control all things because he created all things and he's the one God upon his throne. So Isaiah here, or Hezekiah here, recognizes the difference. Verse 19, he says, Now therefore, O Lord our God, I pray, 
save us. So he puts his focus on God's greatness, God's power. That always helps to instill faith in our hearts when we pray through things, we worship and kind of look upon the greatness of God. And then we come to God with our requests. He says, Lord, save us from his hand and all the kingdoms of the earth that they may know that you are the Lord God, you alone. I like that. He comes and says, Lord, we can't fix this and we can't get ourselves out of this, but Lord, nothing prohibits you from saving us. Lord, you have the power to save. You have the power to intervene and do miraculous things that could never be done by human effort, ideas, or energy. So they're saying, Lord, intervene, save us in this situation. And look, do it, they said, so that everyone may know that you are the one true and living God. I like that. Praying prayers, not just for some personal or selfish end, but praying prayers, Lord, yes, here's my concern, here's my issue, but Lord, work in a way that you get a lot of glory. Lord, work in a way that when you come through and you do this, it will be unmistakably clear that was God. That was God. You know, there have been a few times in my life, I hope in yours too, where maybe a situation arises and, and there becomes an, okay, how am I going to deal with this? How am I going to work this through? And then sometimes they'll even become like this initial opportunity to let the situation get resolved kind of like in some human fleshly manner. And I've genuinely at times felt the Lord say, you can take that option, but I'm not going to be glorified. Or you can wait upon me and ask me and let me work, and then I will solve the situation in my way in such a manner that it will be completely unmistakable. That was a God thing. And I'll get a whole lot of glory out of that situation. And I like this, praying, Lord, please work, please show your power, but do it in a way that people come to know you through it. That people see your power and your faithfulness and your love. And what a wonderful thing to pray, but to pray wanting God to be glorified in the midst of how he answers our prayer. So Lord, save us and do it in a way that they might know it's of you. Then Isaiah, the son of Amos, sent to Hezekiah saying, Thus says the Lord, because you have prayed to me against Sennacherib, king of Assyria, I have heard. And this is the word which the Lord has spoken concerning him. I love that statement there, the word of the Lord again from the prophet, because you've prayed to me, God says, I have heard. In other words, what's being said there, God is saying to Hezekiah, your prayer mattered. Because you prayed, I heard. And I think sometimes we need to be reminded of that reality that our prayers, as I said earlier, the devil wants to make us think our prayers don't matter and they're mute and worthless and, you know, and kind of vain. But God wants us to know your prayers do matter. I listen and I actually intervene and get involved in a personal way. I may not work in your way or in your timing or in the way that you would have expected or preferred. God's going to do it for his purpose and glory. And God sees a bigger picture. And, and look, God's, God's a really good steward. That's what I found. So when God works, I found that when God works, typically God works and he gets the most mileage out of every situation. We just often see a limited picture. Lord, just deal with this. And he goes, right, I, I'm going to deal with that but I'm going to deal with that in such a way that when I deal with that, I'm going to make seven other really great deals at the same time. 
But Lord, no, just trust me. And, and, and here, I love that the Lord's saying, listen, you prayed and I heard. Please don't think that I didn't hear God saying. I fully heard your prayer. I'm listening. And it's going to make a difference in what's going to unfold ultimately. That's the assurance being given here. And this is the word of the Lord concerning Sennacherib, this threatening voice. Here's what God says, somewhat in poetic form. Isaiah gives this word. The virgin, the daughter of Zion, has despised you and laughed you to scorn. The daughter of Jerusalem has shaken her head behind your back. So this is sort of the word of the Lord now to Sennacherib, rebuking him uh, for his uh, efforts to basically try and intimidate the people of Jerusalem. He calls Jerusalem the virgin daughter of Zion. The picture there of a virgin metaphorically is one who's never been entered into, one who's never been touched. And God's saying, look, nobody's ever entered into Jerusalem so far and don't think that you're going to be the one to be able to do that. You may think that's going to happen, but he says that's not going to take place. Whom have you reproached? And blasphemed. Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted up your eyes on high, God says. Against the Holy One of Israel. God says, you're taunting me. You're, God says, you're, you're shaking your fist at me, not at these people. By your messengers, you have reproached the Lord and said, this is the voice now of Sennacherib, God's kind of mocking here, by the multitude of my chariots, I have come up to the height of the mountains, to the limits of Lebanon, I will cut down its tall cedars and its choice cypress trees. I will enter the extremity of its borders to its fruitful forest. I have dug and strunk strange water with the soles of my feet. I have dried up the brooks of defense. Again, this was the, the attitude of Sennacherib. I'm going to do this and I'm going to conquer that. I can cut down a forest and trample anybody underfoot. And the Lord's response, here's God's voice now to Sennacherib's pride and arrogance. Did you not hear long ago how I made it? From ancient times that I formed it, God says. Now I have brought it to pass that you should be for crushing fortified cities into heaps of ruins. Therefore, their inhabitants had little power. They were dismayed and confounded. They were as the grass of the field and the green herb and the grass on the housetops and grain blighted before it's grown. In other words, God's saying the only reason why, Sennacherib, you and your nation of Syria have had any power and success is because I permitted it. I allowed you, God's saying to be my instrument of judgment, to be my instrument for a time as a nation. He says, that's the only reason you were able to crush some of these other cities, but you've now gone too far. In your arrogance, you think that you have some power beyond your ability. Verse 27, God says to him, but I know your dwelling place. You're going out and you're coming in. In other words, you're not going to escape me, God's saying. And your rage against me. Because your rage against me and your tumult have come up to my ears. Therefore, God says to Sennacherib and the Assyrians, I will put my hook in your nose. This is what they would do when they take captives away. They put a hook through their nose and degrade them, carry them off in disgrace with a hook through their nose naked as they march them out of their cities. God says, I'm going to put my hook in your nose and my bridle in your lips. And I will turn you back by the way in which you came. Verse 29, and this shall be a sign to you. So this would be a sign to Hezekiah to be encouraged. You shall eat this year such as grows of itself, and in the second year what springs from the same. Also in the third year sow and reap. 
plant vineyards and eat the fruit of them. In other words, God's saying to Hezekiah, listen, you're going to begin to see that you're again able to work your fields. You don't have to be in fear. God says plant and water and watch the abundance that comes forth. He's not going to come in and steal away what you do. God's saying your labors and efforts are not going to be in vain. God's saying plant and plow and, and, and put forth seeds. And God says the fruit is going to come. Don't think that it's all going to be in vain. He's, he's assuring them, plant your vineyards. You're going to eat the fruit. And the remnant who've escaped, verse 30, of the house of Judah shall again take root downward and bear fruit upward. I, I just like the statement there. Take root downward and bear fruit upward. How do you bear fruit spiritually? You got to sink in some roots. I don't understand. There's no fruit. I just want, I, well, maybe because you keep uprooting all the time. I find sometimes with God's people, the problem is, is, is that we struggle with just taking the time to sink down some roots. If you take a plant, you always keep uprooting it, uprooting it, uprooting it, uprooting it, uprooting it. Well, it's never going to sink down roots, draw what it needs, become a healthy, stable plant, and start to bear fruit. It's a process. You've got to be willing to sink some roots downward. Stop uprooting and moving all over. Sink some roots downward. Be committed to what God wants you to be committed to and sink in the roots that the Lord wants you to where he does. And when you sink those roots downward, then you'll start to bear fruit upward. It will come as the Lord begins to bless and bring forth that fruit. For out of Jerusalem shall go a remnant and those who escape from Mount Zion, verse 31, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Lord, how's that gonna happen? How, Lord? Because the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do it. It will be God's desire and God's power that will do what we cannot do for ourselves. Maybe that's a word of the Lord for one of you this evening. Lord, I just, because the zeal of the Lord, the Lord will do it. I can't do it. That's okay. It's okay. I can't do it either. But the Lord can do it if it's something that's in part of his plan for us. Therefore, thus says the Lord. Verse 32, concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into this city, nor even, look at this, shoot an arrow there, nor come before it with a shield, nor build a siege mound against it. By the way that he came, God assures, by the same way he shall return, and he shall not come into this city, says the Lord, for I will defend this city and save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. God says, for the sake of my honor and my plan and covenant to David, God says, I'm telling you, I don't care how threatening, how intimidating this situation looks in the flesh, God says, I'm not gonna let it happen. I'm not. God says, I'm gonna defend, I'm gonna intervene, and I'm gonna deal with the matter. And what a wonderful thing that God can drive away anything that would destroy his good purposes in our lives. Because I don't know about you, but I find sometimes God's good purposes are evident, but then circumstances, situations start to happen in this sinful world and people do wrong and sinful and mean and rotten things to us and we get hurt and beat up and wounded in the process and, and it looks like our world's gonna bottom out and we're thinking, Lord, it just seems like everything's gonna fail and fall apart and God says, listen, I can drive away any destructive force in your life. I can deal with anything. I, I like this too because God can put an end to the power of any evil force that would want to bring harm into our lives. Sennacherib might have been intimidating to Hezekiah, but Sennacherib looked like Pee Wee Herman to God. 
You catch my drift? I mean, God, he, might have, he might have been a big bully to everybody else. Sometimes people, oh, maybe your boss or some person, there's such an intimidating force in your life. Listen, they may be to you, but are you kidding me? To God? To God, God's looking and saying, are you kidding me? I will turn him right around and send him right away. God's not have a problem with that. What a wonderful thing. You know, when you have a problem, just get God between your problem and you. Just get behind God. Let God deal with it. Let God be your defense. Let God step in despair. Look at verse 35. Remember what God promised? Look at this. And it came to pass. It always does when God promises. It came to pass. On a certain night that an angel of the Lord, one angel, went out and killed in the camp of the Assyrians 185,000. And when the people arose in the morning, there were the corpses all dead. In one night, God sends one angel, 185,000. That's a pretty big army threatening you outside of your city, right? I mean, that's legitimate. You see why they were afraid now. And in one night, one angel comes while they're sleeping or maybe not sleeping because they're so worried. That's what we do, right? God sends one angel and one angel wipes out and kills 185,000 soldiers. They wake up in the morning and their enemy is defeated, completely taken care of. What an incredible thing. You were talking about the power of one holy angel that God can send forth to do his work and how God can put an end to any power that may harm us by whatever means necessary. And again, take notice, a problem that seems so impossible, so overwhelming can be resolved by God in one day. One day. It took God one night to change an impossible problem. One night, the next morning, everything changed. That's what God has the power to do. They talk about the power of a holy angel. I mean, it's incredible that this angel comes in and does this. Verse 36, and Sennacherib, king of Assyria... Look what he did. He apparently wasn't killed. It says he departed and went away and returned home. I think God said that, right? And remained at Nineveh. And it came to pass as he was worshiping in the temple of Nisroch, his God, that his sons, Adremelech and Sherezer, struck him down with the sword. He was assassinated by his own two sons. And they escaped into the land of Ararat, and then Ezhardon, his son, reigned in his place. So God does exactly what God said he would do. God fulfilled his word. God addressed what needed to be taken care of in that situation. Again, what do we learn from this? Certainly one thing, we must, must be careful not to look just at our circumstances. Circumstances did not look good. Would you agree? I mean, you put the circumstances, the picture there, 185,000 people, track record of conquering every other nation. I mean, Everything in the circumstances said, this is really not good. The odds are horribly against me. This looks impossible. Looks but, but we have to not look at our circumstances. We have to look to the Lord. Look not to the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. The things that are seen are temporary and material. The things that are unseen are eternal, supernatural, powerful from a God who can work on our behalf. We need to beware of being driven by what we see and how things look. Instead, we have to seek the Lord. 
Listen to the Lord. Follow the word of the Lord, not the way things look in the temporal and the circumstantial. You know, as I see this story given to us in the Old Testament, this really incredible deliverance of one angel coming in and dealing with 185,000 men, let me uh, close with kind of bringing your memory to, remember when Jesus was about to be arrested before he was crucified? And it says in Matthew, I believe it's chapter 26, that the soldiers came with Judas Iscariot that night to betray Jesus and arrest him so that they could take him captive to be crucified upon the cross. And Peter, just like you and I, right? That's why we love Peter. Peter loved the Lord. He thought, you know what? I don't want to look like a coward. I don't want to look like I'm not devoted. Peter whips out his sword, tries to cut off somebody's head. He was a fisherman, not a soldier. So he lops off the guy's ear. And what does Jesus say? Peter says, Peter, put your sword away. Permit even this, in other words, allow this to happen. You don't understand why, but but let it happen. And then he says this, don't you realize right now I could call down legions of angels to stop this if I wanted to? Do you remember what one angel just did? Dealt with 185,000 soldiers. Legions were large military troops and Jesus said, I could right now summon legions of angels. I picture when they come and they start arresting Jesus, I just picture all the mighty holy angels in heaven looking at God the Father going, just say the word. I mean, just ready to, I mean, you think about they were treating the Son of God. Just, I mean, with everything in them, the restraint that had to be used, that they're to just say the word, Father, we will wipe out the whole, I mean, and Jesus said, I could, call, and, but Jesus said, you know what? This is in alignment with the will of God. It may not make sense. You may not see it. But what was Jesus conveying to the disciples? Stop going off of how it looks. It looked bad. Jesus was being abused, mistreated, arrested. He was, but Jesus said, don't go by how it looks. You live by faith. You live by the word of the Lord and let God's plan unfold and continue to walk by faith. And sometimes we need to remember that. Keep your eyes on the Lord, not the way things look. Let's stand together. Let's pray.